If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Acts, chapter number 17. Acts 17 this morning. In 1977, Maria Rubio of Lake Arthur, New Mexico, was assembling a burrito when she noticed that the skillet marks on one of her tortillas resembled the face of Jesus. Excited, she showed it to her husband and her neighbors, and they all agreed that there was a face etched on the tortilla and that it truly bore a resemblance to the familiar, iconic Roman Catholic images of Jesus Christ. So she went to her priest to have the tortilla blessed. She testified that the tortilla had changed her life, and her husband also agreed that she had become a more obedient, more submissive, more happy wife since the tortilla had entered their lives. The priest was not accustomed to blessing tortillas, uh, so he was a little reluctant, but ultimately agreed to do it. So then Mrs. Rubio took the tortilla home. She put it in a shadow box frame with piles of cotton to actually make it look like it was floating on clouds. Mr. Rubio built a special altar in the backyard for it to rest on, and they put the whole thing in a wooden utility shack, and then they opened the shrine to visitors. Within a few months, more than 8,000 people came to the shrine of the Jesus of the Tortilla, And all of them agreed that the face and the burn marks on the tortilla was the face of Jesus. Except for one reporter who thought that it looked like Leon Spinks, who was a famous heavyweight boxer at the time, who was famously ugly for having his front teeth knocked out. Within two years, more than 35,000 people had visited the shrine. For 28 years, pilgrims kept coming to see the holy tortilla. Over time, the burn marks faded, and the image was hard to make out, but people still wanted to come and worship at the shrine. But then in 2005, Mrs. Rubio's granddaughter took the tortilla to school for a show and tell, and while she was there, somebody dropped it, and the tortilla shattered into several pieces. So Mrs. Rubio kept the shadow box, now with only fragments of the shattered tortilla inside. It was still floating on the cotton clouds, but nobody seemed interested anymore and the Rubio family eventually closed the deteriorating shrine. This is not an isolated incident in our culture. Our world is incredibly confused and conflicted over matters of worship, over the identity of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Thankfully, God's word gives us everything that we need to know that pertains to life and godliness. And in our text today, Paul walks into a city that is incredibly intellectual, yet spiritually bankrupt. Today, we're going to see Paul's response and how he ministered to a chaotic culture. But before we look at the actual text itself, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to help us as we examine his word this morning. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to look into your word. It's always an honor to be able to open up the text of scripture and to preach in this pulpit. I pray that you would help me to cut it straight this morning. I want to rightfully divide the word of truth. I pray that you would open hearts and that you would open minds to the truth. I pray that you would minimize distractions. I pray that you would bind the opposition. And Father, I pray that this morning you would help us to take what is presented, to apply it to our lives, that will leave today more conformed to the image of uh, more conformed to the image of Christ more serious about passionately pursuing after Jesus Christ more dedicated to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ this is what you've called us to do so bless our time this morning help me to preach well giving the words to say I don't want this to be my message I want this to be your message pray that you would help us to listen actively listen with intentionality so that we can apply it We'll give you the honor and glory for it because you're the one that deserves it. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, just give you a little background. Okay, Acts 17, the first section. Paul gets run out of Thessalonica. And then Paul goes to the city of Berea with his team. And Jews come to the city of Berea and they run Paul out of Berea as well. So Paul leaves the rest of his team in Berea to continue to minister there. And Paul goes and continues on to Athens alone. 
So Paul walks into this city, the cultural, intellectual hub of the known world at that time by himself after he's been chased out of the former two cities, beaten, abused, and persecuted. And that is where we pick up with the Apostle Paul in this text in Acts chapter 17. So I just want to read this whole text with you and give you a feel for how it flows together. And then we're going to look at three characteristics of the Athenians that we can learn from today. Let's pick it up in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, what will this babbler say? Other some, he seemed to be a setter forth of strange God because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing that he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And it's made of one blood and nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. That they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art or man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others say, we will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed. Among the which was Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So what I'd like to do this morning is point out three characteristics of the Athenians. And then I want to show you how Paul responded to those. And then I want to show you that this isn't just limited to Acts 17. This actually applies in our world today. So my goal is to bring these characteristics out of the world of the first century and show you how they apply in our world and in our culture. And then answer the question, how should we as believers respond? So the first characteristic that I see of the Athenians here is that they are a culture of idolatry. They're a culture of idolatry. Look at the extent of their idolatry. In verse 16, it says the city was wholly given to idolatry. One popular saying at the time was, it is easier to find a God in Athens than a man. This is practical idolatry. Literally everywhere that you went, lining the marketplace, there were temples everywhere. There were altars around the city. You couldn't go without seeing an idol of some sort and variety. But not only was there practical, uh, practical idolatry, there was also perceived idolatry. Look at verse 18. I think this is really interesting. In verse 18, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they come to Paul and they say, what will this babbler say? But then look at this. He seemed to be a setter forth of strange gods. Gods, plural. What was Paul preaching? Well, he explains here. Paul's preaching Jesus Christ and he's preaching the resurrection. And the Athenians were so engulfed in their idolatry that they thought that those two things were separate gods. They thought that Jesus was one God and they thought that the resurrection was another. They were so engulfed that they couldn't, they couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that somebody could preach that there was only one way to get to heaven. 
This is perceived idolatry. But not only is there practical idolatry and perceived idolatry, there's also personal idolatry. I see this in verse 21. All the Athenians and the strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new things. Listen, the Athenians were enslaved to the gods of academia and intellectualism and philosophy. This is what they were obsessed with. It literally says they didn't do anything else but sit around and debate new philosophies. So it's personal idolatry. There's perceived idolatry. There's practical idolatry. Athens was a city that was wholly immersed in idolatry. So the question then becomes, what was Paul's response? Well, look at verse 16. Now, when Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. Paul was provoked when he came into Athens. And you have to remember, okay, Paul was born into a Greek city. He was born in Tarsus. And Paul was incredibly well-educated. Paul was intellectual. You want proof? Go read the book of Romans. Yeah, Paul, I mean, Paul, that's an intellectual book. And so Paul was well-trained. Paul had an appreciation for culture. And so when Paul walked into Athens without the rest of his team, after being chased out of two cities, he could have just come in and taken a couple days to tour the place. But when Paul comes into the city of Athens, all of that is lost on him. And instead, his one inscription that he sees when he sees the city is, this place is full of idols. Paul was provoked in his spirit when he saw the city. He saw past the glittering facade of the beauty of the city. He saw past the intellectualism of the well-bred elite. And Paul saw the multitudes of people that were there as God saw them as separated from God and doomed to a Christless eternity. And it provoked Paul in his spirit that there were lost people around him that were wholly given to idolatry. So Paul went about his normal routine. We see this in verse 17. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews. And then outside of the synagogue with devout person, these are God-fearing Gentiles that Paul is discussing with. And then he goes into the market daily with them that met with him. So Paul goes into the synagogue and he preaches to the Jews. And then he goes outside of the synagogue and he preaches to God-fearing Gentiles. And then he goes into the marketplace and preaches to the idolatrous pagans that are there. So while the, city, the extent of idolatry in the city was immense, Paul went and he faithfully evangelized in the midst of that idolatry. So the question then becomes for us, how, how does this apply to our culture today? When you leave here and drive home, I don't, I don't think you're going to see any stone idols on the side of the road. I don't think so. You might. <laughs> but it's not going to be the same kind of, you know, it's not going to be the same kind of situation that Paul was dealing with in Athens. So does this situation, does it apply in our world today? And I would argue that yes, it does, because our culture is also steeped in idolatry. And you say, prove it. Okay, well, let me try now, this illustration was not original with me. I borrowed it from another preacher. But the first time I heard it, it hit me right where I was at. So I want to share it with you this morning. So imagine with me that you're a visitor to our country from a faraway foreign land. And you have the opportunity to come and spend the week in Houston one late September. Actually, you might want to wait till October, November when the weather gets a little nicer, okay? But you come, you come to Houston to visit one fall. You come on a Sunday morning and observe many people rising slowly from their beds to make their way to a building that they call church. They groggily approach that building for some sort of ceremony. Clearly, whatever happens at the beginning of that ceremony is not that important because most of the people don't come until after it started. I'm not looking at anybody. Just saying. And so you watch these people file in and begin to mouth the words to songs, many of them almost expressionless, virtually emotionless. After this, they sit down and passively listen to someone talk for a period of time. You notice people starting to get a bit fidgety, uneasy, as the end of the ceremony approaches. And when it's finally over, they quickly walk out. But as you walk out with them and you listen 
to them talk. You hear many of them speaking with one another about something that had happened the previous day. They smile and they laugh as they recount another ceremony that they had been to, which apparently was a bit more interesting than this one. A ceremony that happens on Saturdays. In fact, the rest of the week, that's almost all that you hear people talking about. And the people who were at the Sunday ceremony are strangely silent about what they sang and what they heard about there, but are very enthusiastic about the next Saturday. They can't seem to get here soon enough. So your curiosity is piqued. And you begin to eagerly anticipate the coming Saturday ceremony with them. Then Saturday comes and you see people wake up and leave their houses dressed in some sort of outfit that people wear for these types of days. Many of them drive outside of the city, some to Waco, some to Austin, some even further, where they gather together on what they call hallowed grounds for that Saturday ceremony. They get there early for this ceremony, way early, so that they can eat and drink and play and laugh, not just with their families and friends, but with complete strangers. I mean, you've never seen community like this before. When the time comes, tens of thousands of them enter a shrine together. You can't, can't think of another word for it. Where they raise their voices with passion to applaud some sort of assembly of children that they don't know play a game on a field. And as that game begins, they begin to shout and chant and sing until they virtually lose their voices with far more passion than in the previous Sunday morning ceremony for sure. People don't look at their watches in this ceremony. They are so engulfed in what they're seeing and experiencing that they're actually excited when the game goes long. In fact, overtime is the sign that it's a really exciting game. And the fun doesn't end when the ceremony's over anyway. When the boys that the people have been cheering for win the game, the celebration has only begun. And the amazing thing is that not only the people who were at the game are the ones celebrating. Come to find out that back in Houston, thousands upon thousands of others who couldn't be there watched the game on what they call a TV, many of which are big enough to be virtual movie screens. In fact, they're intentionally designed that way to help you get the most out of this ceremony when you can't be there in person. And back in Houston, scores of people have circled up together around their screens to be part of the ceremony from a distance. They too are in their homes, jumping up and down, high-fiving each other and celebrating long after the ceremony has concluded. And then when it's all finally finished and the plates of wings and the snacks have been put away, late at night, almost as if there's nothing to be prepared for the next day, they go to bed. So let me ask you a question. If you were a visitor from another country, be honest, which would you identify as the religion that is most important to these people? Which would you identify as the religion that most excites this people? As the religion which most consumes these people? Now listen, I'm not anti-sports, okay? I'm a coach, okay? I love athletics. But I think we need to ask the question, right? And understand that while our idolatry might look different, our culture is still steeped in idolatry today. Now, you might not be a sports person, so you're sitting there and thinking, I'm okay. All right, but let me give you a couple more examples. What about your social media? Listen, it's a lot easier for people to worship at the altar of the metaverse than it is for them to commune with the God of the universe. Academics. Politics, sometimes we're more passionate about winning arguments than we are about winning people to Jesus. Could be your boyfriend or your girlfriend or any kind of relationships with people. It could be your business or your job. Parents, your idols could be your children or maybe your idol is yourself. You come in on Sunday and you feign worship and then Monday through Saturday, you practically and personally live like there is no God at all. We live in a culture that is steeped in idolatry. So the question then becomes, if we want to be a part of the solution and not part of the problem, 
What do we do? What do we do? Let me give you three thoughts here. First, we need to confess our personal idolatry to God. We need to confess our personal idolatry to God. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We cannot reach an idolatrous culture if we are idolaters ourselves. So we need to confess our idolatry to God. Secondly, we need to see people the way that Christ saw them. When Paul walked into Athens, he was provoked because he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Christ is described in this way in Matthew chapter 9. It says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Why? Because they fainted and they were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. When you see people the way that Jesus sees them, it's so easy for us to get distracted with everything going on around us that we, feel, that we fail to see people with the eyes of Christ. And then I would argue that you and I need to faithfully declare the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4, through 4, Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver unto you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Listen, the only way to confront an idolatrous culture is to faithfully preach the gospel. Because the reality is that the culture of idolatry has not changed that much in the last 1,500 years. It was true in the days of Paul. It's still true today. But not only were the Athenians an adulterous culture, we see that they were also a people who were confused in their worship. The Athenians were individuals who were confused in their worship. Listen, the Athenians had a complete misunderstanding. They had a complete misunderstanding. They, they had an improper grounds for worship. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 18. Okay? The Epicureans and the Stoics come to Paul and they say, what will this babbler say? He seemed to be a setter forth of strange gods. So they took him and they brought him unto Areopagus. So the Areopagus here, it's an it's a intellectual tribunal. It's a group of philosophers, the most well-educated intellectual men in this city. And their job was to hear new philosophy, to hear new teaching, to see if it would be allowed to be taught in the city. So these men say, hey, this is new stuff. We haven't heard this before. So they grab Paul and they bring, them, they bring him before this group of men. And they say, may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is, for you bring strange things to our ears. But look at verse 21, the Athenians and the strangers which were there. They spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new things. Listen, these philosophers were not interested in the truth. They were just looking for something interesting that they could debate. That's not grounds for proper worship. They completely misunderstood the message. They didn't wrap their minds around the, the fact that Paul was teaching that there is one way to get to heaven. So they hear it and they think, oh, man, that's interesting. Maybe we can add this to everything else that we're teaching. But listen, that's not the message that Paul was presenting. They had an improper grounds for their worship. Not only that, but they had unknown gods that they worshiped. Verse 23 Paul says, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So there was actually dozens of these altars to unknown gods around the city of Athens. So there wasn't just one, there was actually a lot of them. And the reason that those came into being is 600 years before Paul came and visited the city, there was a plague that was working its way through the city of Athens. And so the people didn't know what to do. People were getting sick, they were dying. So a famous poet at the time, Epimenides, came up with an idea said, hey, let's take a flock of sheep up to Mars Hill. And what we'll do is we'll release the sheep and whatever altar that they go down and they lay down by, we'll sacrifice the sheep there. Their thought process was the gods who are angry and are causing this plague will draw the sheep to their altars and then we'll sacrifice the sheep there and we'll appease the gods and the plague will be over. Nobody really clued them in that sheep are dumb. 
<laughs> so when they let the sheep go, the sheep went and they just laid down all over the place. And so instead of saying, well, that plan didn't work, what they thought was, well, there must be some kind of God here. We don't know who it is, but we don't want to take the chance that we miss something, right? So they built altars to unknown gods all the way around the city where those sheep laid down at. They built altars to the unknown gods to try to make sure that they appeased everybody, even the ones they didn't know anything about. So not only did they have an improper grounds for worship, they had unknown gods that they were worshiping. They had a complete misunderstanding. So to confront that, Paul comes in with a clear message. Paul comes in with a clear message. This is verses 22 through 31. Now, I just want to point out a couple of things about Paul's message. First of all, I, I do want you to notice that Paul wisely adapted his presentation. Paul adapted his presentation. If you look in verse 22, it says, Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and he said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. It's a little bit better for us to read that and understand that you are very religious instead of too superstitious. Because what Paul is doing is he's coming and standing before this group of intellectually elite individuals. He's coming and standing before them. He's not trying to turn them off. What Paul is trying to do is develop rapport with these individuals. So he's coming in and standing before them, and they're an idolatrous group of individuals. But Paul wants to reach them with the gospel. So he says, look, in all of these things, I see you, you're a pretty religious group of guys. Right? He develops rapport with his audience here. But not only is he developing rapport there, he also, in verse 28, he quotes Greek philosophers to try to drive home his point. Okay, did you see that? In verse 28, he says, listen, your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So Paul understood his audience. He understood the group that he was speaking to, and he understood the culture in which he lived. And Paul tweaks his presentation. He adjusts it here to try to reach the audience to which he is preaching. Not only that, but Paul also had a different starting place for his message. He's dealing with an audience, a pagan audience, who doesn't know God. So when Paul goes into the synagogues, he can preach to them the one true God because the Jews understood that. But when Paul is here and he's talking to pagan idolaters, he can't start there because they don't know. So he has a different starting place for his message. In verse uh, 23, he says, Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. So Paul has to go back and say, look, there is a sovereign creator God. He has to go back to a different starting place. So he adapts his presentation here. But while Paul adapted his presentation, he didn't adjust his message. Because Paul clearly, he doesn't just adapt his presentation, but Paul clearly articulates his message. Listen, Paul challenged these men on their spiritual ignorance. Okay, look at verse 23. He says, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Remember who Paul is talking to here. Paul is talking to the smartest individuals in the cultural center of the world at that time. Okay, Sasha was here in the first service. Sasha's getting his master's in violin performance from the Shepherd School of Music over at Rice. Okay, now imagine, you have never touched a violin in your life. And you go up to Sasha, and you say, Sasha, you are ignorant about the violin and the way that you're playing it. I mean, we look at that and go, well, that would be ridiculous. <laughs> so consider what Paul is challenging them with here. I mean, these are men who debate for a living. These are men who study for a living. And Paul comes to them and he says, look, because you are worshiping unknown gods, you are spiritually ignorant. Paul clearly is articulating his message here. So Paul challenged them on their spiritual ignorance. Not only that, but Paul communicated the truth about God. In verse 24, Paul communicates that God is creator. He says, God made the world and all things therein. Not only did God create everything, but look at what he says in verse 25. God is sustainer. Neither is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. 
And not only is God creator and sustainer, God is also sovereign because he rules all things. In verse 24, Paul calls him Lord of heaven and earth. And then look at verse 26. He hath made of one blood all nations of men. Why? For to dwell on the face of the earth. He hath appointed the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Listen, God created all things and he sustains all things and he rules all things. And not only that, God is in all places at all times. God is omnipresent. Look at verse 27. That they should seek the Lord. If happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. So Paul is challenging them. He's articulating the truth. He's challenged them about their spiritual ignorance, and now he is communicating to them about who God is. But not only does he communicate to them about who God is, he calls them to seek after God. In essence, what Paul is saying here is this God that I'm telling you about, he is supreme over every other being. He is worthy of your exclusive loyalty and worship, and you better seek after him until you find him. So not only did Paul adapt his presentation, not only did he articulate his message, but he boldly applied it. He boldly applied it. We see Paul's application in verses 29 through 31. In verse 29, Paul confronts their idolatry. It's like Paul takes a sledgehammer here and just smashes all of their idols one at a time. Because in verse 29, he says, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. Paul says, look, this God that I'm preaching to you, he cannot be replicated in an idol. You cannot make him. You cannot design him. He is one of a kind, and he deserves your worship. That's a bold application. But not only does he confront their idolatry, he also confronts their intellectualism. Look at verse 30. At the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. When I was a school administrator for a couple years, I taught world history. There is a whole chapter in world history dedicated to the Greeks. Why? Because in the golden age of Greek culture, they were the world leaders in mathematics, in science, in medicine, right? and like everything else. <laughs> and then when Alexander the Great went and conquered the world, the known world at that time, there was a process called Hellenization. And what happened is Alexander the Great basically took Greek culture and spread it across the known world at that time. I mean, this was the golden age of Greek culture. And you see how Paul describes it in verse 30? Times of ignorance. Paul says, look, it doesn't matter about your mathematical abilities. It doesn't matter about your philosophical intellectualism. It doesn't matter about your scientific discoveries because to God, God looks at that and says times of ignorance because there's one person that you need to seek after and find. It's God himself. So Paul confronts their idolatry. He confronts their intellectualism. And then he also confronts their independence in verse 31. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he has raised him from the dead. Listen, these philosophers thought that they could reason their way. (laughs) They worship many gods and taught that there was more than one way to get to heaven. And Paul challenges their independence and says, look, there is a judgment day that is coming and you cannot escape it on your own. You need to repent. You need to repent. So Paul adapted his presentation. Paul articulated his message. Paul also boldly applied his message. So let's take it out of the world of the first century and let's bring it into today. Let's bring it into today. Does this, what Paul did in Athens, does this still apply for you and I today? I would argue that yes, it does. And the first reason I would argue that it applies is because our culture has a complete misunderstanding about genuine worship. Our culture is not that different from the Athenians. Our culture misunderstands genuine worship. Look, 
uh, in a 2017 survey by LifeWay, it found the following stats. Okay, this is a survey of Americans and religion. Less than half of Americans say that the Bible is 100% accurate in everything that it teaches. Less than half. Half of Americans say that the Bible was written for each person to interpret however he or she chooses. So what that's saying is God didn't have a message when he wrote the Bible. He just gives you a bunch of words, you read them, and you can make them say whatever you want to. Listen, that is not how God intended his word to operate. We need to understand what God's message is. We need to declare it boldly and then apply it. Hey, go do what he says. But half of Americans think that you can read the Bible and make it say whatever you want to. Okay, we don't believe in absolute truth. Three quarters of Americans disagree with the idea that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Over three quarters of Americans say people must contribute their own effort for personal salvation. Half of Americans say that their good deeds have helped them earn a spot in heaven. And nearly half believe that there are many ways by which a person can get to heaven. That's America today. Well, actually, that was America in 2017. Over the last four years, it probably hasn't gotten better. Now, if we were to just say, look, we just need a little more education. We just need a little more training. We just need a few more Bible studies. I'm not trying to scare you this morning, but the next generation, Generation Alpha, I'm a children's ministry pastor, right? So I've been doing some study and some research on this. The next generation, Generation Alpha, it's fifth grade and down. So basically all the kids that are in junior church right now. They are the most well-educated, technologically savvy, most unchurched and biblically illiterate generation in human history. They worship education and technology and entrepreneurial spirit, but they have no idea who the one true God of the Bible actually is. Our world has a complete misunderstanding. So, how do we respond? Our world needs a clear message. Our world needs a clear message. Listen, can I be honest with you for a second? Your unsaved neighbor doesn't need another lecture about your political agenda. He needs the power of the gospel. Your coworker doesn't need another worn out conversation about vaccines. He needs to hear that there is victory to be found in Jesus. Your friend doesn't need another pseudo-Christian message about prosperity. She needs to hear that there is true peace that is found in Jesus Christ. Your social group doesn't need to hear another thought on reformed. They need to know that they can be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Your friends don't need you to wax eloquent on critical race theory. They need you to boldly proclaim Christ crucified. Our world doesn't need you to scream about social justice. Our world needs you to unapologetically declare that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our world doesn't need our dead intellectualism, our seeker-sensitive philosophy, promotional gimmicks, theological soapboxes, or the American dream wrapped up in the bow of the prosperity gospel. What the world needs is a bold declaration that the problem in our world is sin, and the answer is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Some people might argue that that's not very culturally relevant. There's two common objections to this. Okay, the first one is over here. And we say, well, that message can't impact our culture today. That message is going to be canceled by our culture. We need to be like our culture to reach our culture. And then there's another objection over here. And this one tends to come more from inside the church. And this one says, our culture is beyond redeeming. And the church just needs to circle the wagons and live in self-isolation and enjoy our potlucks, right? And we'll go into our prayer closet and we'll pray for the world and maybe judge them a little bit, but we're actually not going to go and engage them for Christ. Let me answer both of those biblically for a second. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10 tells me that if I seek to please men, I cannot be the servant of Jesus Christ. So whether or not our culture cancels us out, okay, I'd rather be canceled out by our culture and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because we are not here to please men. We are here to be faithful servants of Jesus Christ. And then over here, 
We can't just circle the wagons and isolate ourselves. Because Matthew 28, 19, and 20, God has given us a mission. It's the Great Commission. He's called us to go into the world to evangelize, to baptize, to teach all nations, to make disciples. So I, I can't stay over here because if I do, that's disobedience. So listen, God hasn't called us to be woke and God hasn't called us to be weak. God has called us to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And it's time that we stood up with a clear message. Our message should be simple and it needs to be clear. We preach Christ. Our world is lost. They don't understand genuine worship. They're blindly groping in their idolatry, and the church needs to have a clear message. We must preach Christ crucified, and we must be bold in our declaration. Now listen, I understand this is not a small challenge. It's a big challenge. I'm also thankful that, well, God has called us to be faithful. <laughs> he hasn't called us to generate results. And this brings me to our third observation on the Athenians this morning. The Athenians were conflicted over Christ. They were conflicted over Christ. And I see this in verses 32 through 34. There's really three responses here that we see in this text. The first response in verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. The first response we see here is contempt. Contempt. Apparently, some of the philosophers here had heard enough, and they wrote Paul off. They had brought an end to his message by literally laughing him off the stage. They had contempt toward the message. But we see a second response here. Our second response is, others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. Curiosity. Curiosity. Some were intrigued, and they told Paul that they would hear him present again at a later time. And after Paul said his words after he was laughed off the stage and he had some curious people talk to him afterwards, he left. Right? He left. But there were individuals who were curious. They, they were interested in hearing more for one reason or another. And then finally, the third response we see in verse 34, this is conversion. Conversion. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. I think it's interesting here. Dionysius was a member of the intellectual tribunal. Do you see how he's described there? An Areopagite. He was part of this group of intellectuals. He was part of this, these elite men who had heard Paul preach. And while some mocked, and while some were curious, at least one, Dionysius, heard the message. And he came and talked to Paul, and Paul led him to Jesus. And then we have another name here as well, Damaris. Damaris was probably a common woman because there's no title, there's no additional information that we have about her. So when Paul stands up to preach, it's interesting that the power of the gospel has the ability to reach both the intellectually elite and ordinary people. It has the ability to reach people on both ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. It has the ability to reach people on both ends of the intellectual spectrum. It has the ability to reach people of every ethnicity. It has the ability to reach people of every ability. The power of the gospel can change any life. And Paul's message in Athens proves that. This little band of converts then joins Paul and they became the first Christians in the city of Athens. Now in our world today, I I think that these three responses, contempt, curiosity, conversion, still pretty accurate wherever the gospel is preached. So if you go and you faithfully declare Christ, individuals are going to react in one of three ways. They're going to respond in contempt, they'll be curious, or they'll accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Chase and I had the opportunity to go out. We were so when we're trying trying to be intentional about sharing the gospel in my neighborhood. So Chase is going with me, and, and uh, we're just knocking on doors in an area around my house. And I had the opportunity to knock on a lady's door, and she answered and, and said, hey, my name is James. I actually live right here in the neighborhood. I'm, uh, I'm on staff over at Arise Baptist Church in Houston. Just want to let you know 
you don't have a church that you're currently attending, we'd love to have you come and, and worship with us. So she told me she goes to a, 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 large, a large church in town. Okay, great. Well, more important than going to church is knowing that you're on your way to heaven when you die. So I want to ask you a quick question. Do you know for sure that if you were to die today, you're on your way to heaven, or is that something you're still working on? And she looked at me and goes, are you one of those Jesus-only people? <laughs> I don't know how you define a Jesus-only person, as if, but uh, our definitions might be a little different, but I do believe the Bible teaches that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I mean, John 14, 6 tells us, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. As she said, well, I don't believe that. Close the, <laughs> close the door. Close the door behind you. Okay. So Jason and I went down. We're walking down the street, and he looks at me. And he goes, man, the message of the gospel was offensive to that woman. And it absolutely was because we challenged her idolatry. We challenged her intellectualism. We challenged her independence. And listen, when people hear the truth of the gospel, they're going to respond either in contempt or they're going to respond with curiosity or they'll be converted. Well, listen, God hasn't called me to convert everybody. God has called me to be a faithful Jesus person. Right? We need to be faithful in declaring the gospel. Paul didn't blow the socks off of these intellectual elite in Athens, right? The whole tribunal didn't get converted, but one did. And another ordinary woman who was listening got converted as well. The gospel changed their lives. God hasn't called us to get results, but he has called us to be faithful in proclamation. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2 tells us, Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Paul was content, as we should be, to faithfully declare the gospel and allow the saving power of that gospel to speak for itself. Listen, you, do not, you and I don't have to persuade people to Jesus. But we do need to be faithful in declaring the message. We do need to be faithful in sharing the gospel. We need to be bold in our declaration because our world needs a clear message. there's one thought that I want to leave you with today, it's this. Because our idolatrous world is conflicted and confused, we must be faithful in declaring the clear message of the gospel. Because our idolatrous world is conflicted and confused, we must be faithful in declaring the clear message of the gospel. Timothy Stackpole was a New York firefighter. In 1995, he got, or 1998, he got severely burned in a fire. Second and third degree burns over 40% of his body. He was in ICU for months. They didn't know if he would recover. His one goal, when he, because he got injured on the job, he had a full pension waiting for him when he recovered. But he had one goal, and his one goal was to be a New York City firefighter again. So when he recovered, against the odds, and against the advice of his friends and family, and despite the fact that he had a full pension waiting for him, he went back to work. And he was eventually promoted to captain. He was a great firefighter, passionate about his work. And he was also one of the firefighters that ran into the second tower on 9-11 to try to save someone, anyone, who needed help. And when that second tower collapsed, it took Timothy Stackpole's life. When I was reading through his obituary and some stuff that his wife had written, it was explicitly clear to me that Timothy was a man that was passionate about his calling, about his calling to be a firefighter, about his calling to save people. And can I just challenge you this morning? God has given us as believers a calling. It's time for us to get passionate about the calling that God has given to us. God has called us to confront the idolatry in our culture with the truth of the gospel. God has called us to communicate the truth clearly and passionately. And God has called us to challenge our world with the truth and to trust God with the results. So my question for you this morning is, will you be a believer? that faithfully reaches out into our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ.
Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning. These thoughts are not highly academic. They're simple. But I trust that they come straight out of the text. I believe that this is the message that you would have me present this morning. And Father, I'm, I'm also preaching to myself today. I pray that you would help me to be faithful in boldly declaring the gospel, to see people with the eyes of Jesus Christ, to be clear in my message. And Father, you use the church. We are the vehicle that you use to accomplish your will in the world today. And it's easy for us to sit around and bemoan our culture, but Father, help us to be individuals that go and engage our culture with the gospel. This is a serious calling, but it's our mission. It's our commission. Father, we need your help to be faithful to do it. Let me ask you a question this morning. If the Holy Spirit, uh, if the Holy Spirit has convicted you, touched you, challenged you in one way or another, would you just slip your hand up very quickly and, and put it back down? We're not gonna not gonna call you out. Not gonna do anything like that. But if the Holy Spirit's challenged you, Amen. Now I would be remiss if I didn't ask this question. Paul preached a very clear message. He preached a message of repentance. Listen, there's only one way to get to heaven. Jesus Christ came and he died. He lived a perfect sinless life. He died on the cross to save and redeem sinful men. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we can accept his free gift of salvation by grace through faith. So let me ask this morning, if you would say, I, there's three responses. There's contempt, there's curiosity, there's conversion. If you would say, listen, I, I've been curious, and maybe I've been contemptuous, but I've never actually been converted. If that's you, nobody's looking, nobody's going to call you out, but I do want to pray for you. But if that's you, if you've never been converted, would you just slip your hand up very quickly? Just slip it up and put it back down. Father, thank you that your Holy Spirit is at work this morning. I pray that you'll help us to take the truths now and apply them to our hearts and apply them to our lives. We give you the honor and glory for it. 